Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Game Dev Unchained, the number one game development podcast about game development and the lifestyle thereof. I am your host, Brandon Pham, and with me, a special guest this week, Jason Lee. How are you doing, Jason? I'm doing good. Awesome. Uh, so this is a part of the podcast where I ask our guest, which is yourself, uh, about yourself, like where you've been, where you at, where you're heading, just a little short introduction to our listeners out there. Yeah. So hello, everybody. My name is Jason Lee. I'm Chief Creative Officer um, at Pixelmatic. Um, I'm at Pixelmatic. What Chief Creative Officer is, I'm basically in charge of the whole creative direction of the game. So basically how vision is experienced by the player through the perfect combination of gameplay, um, the art and sound. Um, I've worked in the game development industry for over 15 years. Uh, and uh, before joining Pixelmatic, I was at Relic Entertainment involved in franchises at Company of Heroes, um, which was one of the highest rated RTS games of all time. And Age of Empires 4. Um, Age of Empires 4 is a huge project being developed by uh, Relic Entertainment and published by Microsoft, taking off fa- all things that fans love about Age of Empires and allowing them to experience again as if it was developed in 2020. Um, yeah. Uh, and um, let's see, uh, the team, uh, maybe uh, talk uh, about Pixelmatic. Um, Pixelmatic is a game development studio based in Shanghai um, with distributed teams all around the world. Uh, so uh, most of the creative uh, leadership team is based in Vancouver, BC and Victoria in Canada. Um, the team at Pixelmatic is comprised of uh, many AAA veterans in the game game development industry. Um, we, they come from industries like Relic, uh, Ubisoft, Bioware, Nintendo, um, and have worked on games like Company of Heroes, Age of Empires 4, Homeworld, Anthem, EVE Online, and more. Awesome. Well, there's a lot to dig into here. So um, we're going to go, you know, uh, off tangent once in a while. But uh, the, the meat of the topic is, of course, you know, what you guys are doing at, at, at Pixomatic and MMO uh, in general. But uh, a few questions that I think to kind of dive deeper into your, your origin story a bit. Uh, so you started in AAA. Uh, I mean, you spent a good amount of time in AAA. Uh, and what I always find interesting is uh, developers that jump around a lot um, to, to different parts of the industry. And now you have, you have your own studio. Um, uh, did you kind of go over like uh, how big the team is real quick at Pixelmatic? Um, Just to give an idea. About um, around 50 to 60 people now. We're growing. Yeah. Oh, nice. Uh, so to kind of compare that to, you know, what you guys, what you're used to, uh, how, how big were the teams over um, 
at your previous studio? Yeah, I would say like Relic Entertainment. It's probably like a mid-tier uh, level studio compared to a bigger like EA, which would be like, you know, Omega. <laughs> yeah. But um, Relic, I would say, is, I think it's like 200 or so oh, yeah. um, altogether. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the, one of the questions that I always... Because MMO has been a part of game development game industry for a long time and it you know it's it, the name nomenclature itself is called massively mm-hmm. multiplayer <laughs> right uh, what does it say for mmo again i always get it mixed up yeah massive multiplayer yeah online right and uh it's been it's been kind of weird because the battle royale recently has kind of been dominating the charts and kind of took took that and then it stretched it a bit because you know you're dealing with 100 players now so how massive really is multiplayer online games now is it comparative to that or like what 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 is the average number of size of players that you expect in like an like a regular mmo um, I think it really depends on their technical limitations. Um, uh, I think like I, what defines um, an MMO is really just that there's a lot of players that can play together in, in, in one virtual universe, right? Um, something that's more than like four on four because, you know, that can be done. That's not an, an MMO. Yeah. But, you know, in the scale of like 10 versus 10 or even like 20 versus 20, like 100 people or more, um, it's hard to say, put an actual number on it because like if they can do more, that's that's great. Right. Uh, I think that's more of a technical limitation um, in, in our universe. Like we're aiming for scenarios where we can have up to um, like 40, 50 people in, a, in one concentrated instance at a time. So yeah, that's quite a lot of people. Yeah, that's still a lot for sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the reason why I'm, I'm following up with this question is because, like, um, genres have been kind of blurred the last few years. You know, you know, battle royale is technically a kind of a MMO type, uh, but then there's an MMO RPG, and it's like just a lot of hybrid type of genres that gets mixed up. And uh, in a way, it, it, for me at least, it feels like. Um, it's hard to kind of label games nowadays and just call it by the title of the game. <laughs> yeah. I know. Uh, so, yeah. Like, MMO just simply refers to the number of players that have, that can, um, that has accessibility, uh, you know, that can play together. Um, when you talk about, um, the battle arena, uh, style games, um, their focus is about PVP where, you know, players are pitted against each other. Um, uh, in a bigger arena sense, I like, kind of like the gladiator pit, uh, you know, mm-hmm. games like that are, uh, so that you know, those games are generally labeled MOBAs, which like, um, uh, yeah, that, that, that's their term. Um, but, um, yeah, like what infinite fleet is trying to do is trying to create a, a, a game where, you know, massive amounts of players can play together. Uh, and there's uh, that so- whole social dynamic aspect where players can collaborate and, and help each other out um, uh, is, is something that's very important. Um, so that, that's that's the reason for uh, the, the importance of that sort of MOBA, uh, not MOBA, sorry, the ma- MMO aspect of things, because we want uh, massive player collaborations and uh, the ability for players to sort of direct the narrative um and that can only be done uh when 
the, the there's a huge group, groups of players that can sort of collaborate with each other and the game itself is not focused on a sort of solo experience yes and um again to kind of talk about your, your time over at relic you, you spent like a good amount of a decade basically over there um what what the switch is always interesting being a developer myself because I, I jumped around too. I, I started AAA, um, and at a certain point, I wanted to see what indie was like and mobile, and to kind of discover different things. What was your motivation to to for the switch to kind of do things uh, on a smaller scale? Yeah, I mean, um, I actually didn't switch around. Like, I started at Relic, so I was actually there for a long time. Yeah, this was my first. Um, move um and it, it took a while to make this decision it was sort of always in the back of my mind that i felt like it was sort of the next push in terms of my career that i had to take in order for me as as a um, game developer to sort of grow um when you're working i don't know if you you said you worked in the game development industry before but I don't know if you've experienced the same thing, but I feel like uh, in a bigger studio, um, everybody is very specialized, right? In their role. And you don't get to really branch out and experience um, a lot of the different areas of even your own, um, uh, like design. I'm a designer, so all the different facets of design um, that I I want to see and sort of grow uh, as a developer. Um, And I also wanted to learn more about the whole scape of you know the game development industry as a whole from uh you know like um the financial aspect of things how things get funded how um you know the sort of operations and stuff works as well so yeah i wanted to get the whole holistic picture of the game development so that you know that those are some of the reasons why i made the switch um i felt like i was doing i you know being where I was for as long as I have, I felt like a machine, just sort of replicating the same thing over and over again. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I just had to sort of grow as a person and, and, and as a developer. So I had that's the biggest reason why I made the switch. Yeah, I, I think a lot of developers, and uh, I talk to students or, or listeners that are starting the industry, and there is a glorifying aspect of AAA. It's it's the light that everybody kind of uh, gets magnetized to when they think about mo- moving and working in the industry, right? And at least that's how I felt, you know, um, at, you know, when I was a student in the very beginning and a good four, five years into it, I was like, AAA all the way. <laughs> There's nothing else. Uh, but what I often find is talking to veterans such as yourself, it's like there is a wall that you hit as a developer that uh, tends to deteriorate um, a, a facade that you kind of build up for yourself. And uh, I, I completely agree with you. There is a, a price to being at the bleeding edge because a lot of AAA development is about that. It's just like you're working with the latest tech, but the, the truth is, and especially MMOs, there's long dev cycles and like the discoverability of new technology and things are usually the first year but after that it's like you said rinse and repeat uh for a long time and uh like you said and maybe you can relate to this i I was often finding myself at the bleeding edge but like kind of falling behind on like innovations because you know i i I get jealous the like the smaller teens the indie developer who's like 
playing around with new tools like every month because they can incorporate and be flexible. Uh, big machines don't move that way. Um, if you can kind of talk uh, more about that aspect too, kind of like what your own experience, what, what, and especially in design, like what kind of things, like you were saying, you, you were being pigeonholed to, to uh, department of design and you wanted to really look, you know, uh, at the holistic view of what yeah. design has to offer in a game. Yeah. Um, so, um, the thing about big, uh, bigger studios is they like to play safe, right? Um, yeah. Obviously, when you have more to lose, uh, you want to risk, you, you want to take less risk. Um, so, I mean, uh, when I was talking about sort of, uh, uh, you know, being pigeonholed into what I was good at, you know, a lot of what I was good at at uh, Relic was sort of system design, multiplayer design, game balance, um, you know, in that role. So, um, you know, I did want to explore more in sort of leadership and um, more in um, uh, sort of the high, making decisions more on the higher level uh, end of thing, because, I, you know, I wanted to sort of, I saw issues um, uh, in, in certain designs that were um, at the core of things. And I felt like at some aspect, in some aspects, I didn't have the influence uh, and I wasn't involved um, to uh, make those changes. I just had to sort of take uh, that direction and make the best of it. Right. Um, so those are things that I just and maybe I was wrong. Uh, if I was more involved, I could have better understood some of those decisions, but I wasn't. Right. So um, I, I just wanted to be involved and learn more about that. Um, but it's just. Like I understand from Relic as a studio perspective, it's just that, you know, there's this, we, we have an employee that's amazing at this one area, you know, it's hard to find somebody that is as good. So, you know, why, why put them somewhere else? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I understand that part from a company investment perspective, but um, as an employee, you know, I like, you know, as everybody, they want to grow. Right. Um, at, and from a studio perspective, you know, like bigger studios are less prone to sort of take risk and try new things, right? New IPs and um, new monetization model, you know, new technology, um, because it hasn't been proven. They have to be the guinea pig, right? Where, you know, the newer studios are trying to make indie games and they're trying to make a name for themselves, right? So um, they're, they're more... Uh, willing to make those uh, kind of uh, risks and take those risks and try more of that kind of stuff. So that that's also also super exciting. Um, being able to um, participate in, in you know um, the the sort of new technology and uh, new ways of doing things, um, uh, uh, game development or technology or monetization and all of that um, to see you know what it how we can sort of innovate the game industry as a well. whole yeah and uh to kind of sign off on that too the, one of the biggest trends uh last i think couple of years uh has been um these relatively big teams big games like an mmo uh then finding smaller teams to do it but more efficiently um and like, like you said, the comparison, that's why I asked the question before, like a relatively MMO team, usually triple A team, triple uh, A team, like a uh, first person shooter is like two, three hundred and that's high MMO. Like you said, two, three hundred, it's like mid-sized MMO. So usually those teams are even crazier. Um, 
And uh, now your your team is growing from 50 to a little more. But, you know, there is a containment that you guys probably don't want to, you know, pass a threshold uh, to kind of keep it, you know, relatively everyone has an opinion type of thing. Uh, but like the last couple of years has been that kind of move where we're like these games that used to be made with bigger teams can be done now with better tools, uh, better efficiency. Can you kind of talk more of that aspect of what you guys are bringing with Infinite Fleet that that you feel is, you know, in, in comparison uh, and more agile than what you were used to making? Yeah, um, so one prime example is, um, I think it was Star Citizen um, that just said they raised like $10 million um, (laughs) to open up a new, I mean, (laughs) they keep raising money without the game being released, but yeah, they just raised, they have $10 million that they're going to dedicate uh, to opening up a new studio with a whole bunch of people that are just going to focus on building uh, their universe, their world. Um, For us, like we don't need to do that. Um, like uh, the way we're gonna build our world is through procedural generation by um, just creating a specific rule sets for where how how, pro- how the procedural generation uh, it should execute, right? And that way, um, you know, we uh, we we don't need um, a whole. Yeah, a ten million dollar studio just based on creating levels. I, I think this is a bit overkill. Um, mm-hmm. What they're trying to do, uh, you know. So that that's like a prime example of what we're doing. Also, like in terms of um, the way studio and structure is run, um, like it's it's very different. I guess like uh, the mindset uh, of uh, a bigger studio um, because they have this big chunk of money right from the beginning, um, saying, "Hey, you have this money." and build this game. So you can holistically plan um, the development of what that game is and just slowly build things, uh, you know, to reach that goal. Where from an indie or a startup that is trying to raise money while developing, they have to sort of break apart. Um, they, they need the big picture, but they also have to break apart. What is the uh, core? What, what is the core of our game that has to be uh, what we like if we were to release a let's say a two million dollar game, what would that look like? Um, if that game was uh, now we can make it into a five million there, what what would that game look like? And, and sort of look at the MVPs and start and develop the game in that manner, right? Uh, so you know those, those are some um, yeah big differences. Yeah, the, 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 I think the two biggest things with game developers as part of strengthening our, our tool shed has been cheating as much as much as possible and uh, editing. Uh, and I feel like you said big budget games uh, are great when you have a ton of money and, and it feels like creative freedom, but I think the creative freedom kind of creates a problem for a lot of creatives <laughs> wow. uh, because it just doesn't show any limitation and it's just endlessly long dev cycles and 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 and, and just not and and funny enough uh not very innovative because they don't want to test the waters too much it, it's a weird predicament with that um with triple a it, it's a weird way you would think that with the most money that they have the most room to move around but it's the opposite and then the indie devs are the one that are being innovative because they have so much risk <laughs> at hand and they have to constantly cut away features and i'm talking to a designer on an mmo so cutting features is probably the hardest things uh that a 
that discipline has to do uh, versus all other discipline. Um, so I, I would like to kind of ask you about that more on um, more on that front. Right when when it comes to you were you're mentioning right uh, a competitor ish, but feel free not to to answer the question how comfortable you you know Star Citizen right Star Citizen has to me at least and this is my opinion it's been kind of like. <laughs> it's something I laugh at all the time because they are never shipping that game. <laughs> and uh, I don't think the fans realize that, that uh, it is against their <laughs> wishes to ship that game because they're making money every day. Right. Um, and, and at the same time, it hurts me as a developer because, you know, that was in the heyday of Kickstarter crowdfunding um, where you, you go direct to consumer and it's like a dream come true for a lot of developers. Like I don't have to, cut out the middleman, right? I want to develop a game and I found the fans that fund it. But I think that trend and maybe they'll prove us all wrong. Star Citizen is this grandiose game. Um, but I would love to kind of hear your commentary about that because MMO uh, is very similar to a lot of like uh, game design focused Kickstarter projects like the board games, you know, analog games made like a huge, huge run. Uh, and I feel like that format has kind of been taking a back seat because of all this, I wouldn't say failed crowdfunding, but this longer crowdfunded projects. So I think um, the thing is um, I, like what, what I, what I worry about with um, star citizen is there's all these different features and different things going into the game. They're, um, you know, it, that's why it's not releasing, um, you know, all these. And the thing is, as a designer, I can relate in that, you know, there's always interesting and creative ideas that come and like, oh, that would be cool. And oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great idea. Uh, we want players to explore that or experience this. Right. But um, at the end of the day, like I think like players need to be somewhat led um, or else they get lost in your universe and don't know what to do. Right. And um, that's sort of when you start to cut features like in our city, you know, when we need to really focus on what features is important, you know, we have to ask the hard question, like what is the core experience that we want players to have when they play infinite fleet. Right. And that has to be developed first and foremost and really beefed up first and foremost and everything else is sort of placed on top. And then they sort of accentuate uh, that experience um, and add to it, right? Um, so it's really, um, yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, I, I think once you have a, a once you have a game and you've built the game with that sort of, um, you know, with a with a um, healthy core experience developed um, with some level of uh, you know, further depth, you have to really ask yourself, like, are all these features really necessary, um, you know, with, with the original goals that we set in mind, or are, are we just, um, yeah, just, just adding things just for the sake of adding things because we think it'll be cool. Right. And I, I feel like that's sort of at this point where, you know, star citizen is sort of at, <laughs> I don't think they really need to be developing the game anymore, but yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I I always joke around that if I can handcuff 
a producer with a designer <laughs> in the studio, it mm. solves a lot of the issues because right. deadlines are, are so important um, for, for all discipline, uh, especially. And I think for a, a major undertaking like an MMO, um, which I feel is still one of the hardest games uh, or genres to kind of tackle, um, is very important to kind of like go back to the drawing board and, and constantly be reminded of what's important uh, to kind of uh, make sure that things are going to go out in a timely manner. Because that that's another thing that I want to kind of lead into is uh, super long game cycles. Uh, super long game cycles kind of slows down discoverability. And because of that, you know, um, trends, there's a lot of trends that happen within three years, within five years, within eight years, right? And uh, it's one of the things I think developers always try to avoid because unless you're Rockstar where you're okay with just (laughs) pumping one game out every eight years, uh, that's unrealistic for a lot of studios to sustain. Um, I would love to kind of hear your commentary about that, your your kind of uh, your observation about that uh, in general about the industry and uh, if that applies to MMO or, or other genres, especially. Yeah, I think um, games that require a ton of time, uh, like like five-year development, six-year development cycles, are really reserved for like that whole grand, um, you know, grand game that you're trying to create this amazing, like Cyberpunk, for example, right? Um, but for most games, uh, I, I think if anything, that works against them because it's like within, even within a year, the, the sort of um, the trends and the things that players enjoy and they like and how they experience games and stuff, uh, they change, right? Um, so if you're for, for a long game development cycle, like by the time, from the time you start understanding who your player audience is, and by the time you finish, you're catering towards a very, you know, they could be very different, different generation and how they experience game could be totally different. So now you have to sort of take that into mind as well. Um, I mean, if you think about like, I, I'm a general gen Xer. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, so the kind of games um, and the things that uh, I know in my generation that we, we enjoyed and we were okay with is vastly different, like amazing, like hugely different, right? Um, from uh, the gamers of today and how they interact with games um, because of, you know, social media and all sorts of different ways in which, um, and the different types of different number of games that they have access to, right? Um, so, yeah, yeah, I mean, I think... Um, it depends on the type of game you're making. Um, uh, Cyberpunk, I think it's like what five, six, six, six or seven years in development, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So, like, I mean, and that—that's they were trying to create a very specific masterpiece, right? Um, yeah. And that's why they took that long to make it. So, I think there's a case to be made uh, for certain games like that, um, but. I think it's few. <laughs> yeah. I think that I don't think that should be the trend uh, for most games. Um, I think for most games, um, I think if anything, it's a negative uh, to to have like extremely long development cycles. And, and to be honest, they don't need it. Um, from my experience, one of the uh, major reasons for um, long development cycles um, is not that they were originally planning for these long development cycles. They usually plan for it to be really shorter, but like delays 
delay element of things is the change in direction um, in the middle of or like near the end of the release cycle, right? Um, and and uh, you know that comes from not putting enough time, I think, and effort in the early planning phase. Um, that's why I generally like to have a longer, much longer um, prototype and pre-production phase and a shorter um, sort of execution and let's finish the game phase, right? Because once you're clear on exactly what you're trying to build, um, building the game, just, you know, just checking and just doing your stuff, that, like that's not hard, right? It's just trying to figure out all the little dynamics and details, um, you know, that, that, that takes a lot of time, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I, from my experience, it's always like, you know, plan well and then just, you know, and then just execute, right? And then put the planning time into really planning the game well. Yeah, I think it is one of those elements that is... Um like condoning bad behavior a lot with AAA developers. Uh, I think there are obviously geniuses. There are visionary directors that help kind of move things around and, uh, and you know, that grants them the chance to kind of do it again. Right. But in, in reality, at least in my experience, a lot of these studios, uh, these visionary directors don't really know what they're doing. And so there is like a loose idea and then a lot of execution. And then when you, bring it to a bunch of developers at the meeting there's a lot of opinions and then that sounds good and again it's just un there's a wavering uh unclear direction that is easily influenced by opinions and and i think that happens with a lot of uncertainty and that is like you said i totally agree why long dev cycles happen um just poor planning and i i do like your your, your take on like having a better pre-production uh, and like you said, if there is bullet point list that you do every day, that is very defined. You can really do that uh, as long as there's, you know, no brainstorming in the middle of it. Why is there brainstorming? I mean, there might be some kind of tool discoverability that you can kind of phase out uh, for a block of time. But outside of that, there shouldn't be any design major changes to the whole ecosystem of the game, yeah. which happens all the time, I think. Yeah. I think that's one of the biggest plague to AAA development. It's just the uncertainty. That's why when I hear games like um, Death Stranding, because one of my biggest fear for this gen, for the PS5 and Xbox, is the long death cycles. It's a real problem. Um, but Death Stranding, when I heard it was like Kojima doing it in three years with his team that he built a startup studio and he was scrambling around for an engine. He did it all in three years. It's like, no matter if you don't like it or not, that's an amazing feat um, just to put something out. And you don't hear stories like that uh, so often. And I, I wonder if it's because the veteran is the team. A lot of it has to do with the team working together for a long time and trusting each other. Uh, but a lot of it's just putting your foot down and, and just going with what you initially set out to do. Um, uh, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I don't think that's going to end <laughs> the trend oh, of, oh, yeah. yeah, it's weird, but uh, I think people just need to, ah, I, I hope, I think a lot of it has to do with accountability because I think people shift blames and uh, we do kind of like, um, I think in our society kind of, glorify uh, celebrities so we can have this like we put this power on this visionary director and think all this is part of the process and i think people accept that too much and it's causing yeah. a problem i think yeah like the thing about visionary directors that like some are great um but 
uh, keep like some are really just visionaries. Like they just their job is to create the vision, yeah. but it doesn't mean that they understand how the players um, feel. And this is I think this is what you mean um, by like so sometimes their vision don't make sense. Yeah, and that um, they don't really know. Um, it just it just they're just like expressing um, sort of their. Um, ideas and their creative world um, and, and how they want to how on how they want that to sort of be expressed in the game but they're not thinking about how the players are going to experience it right um, and so they, they they just see it from their perspective and that's usually when some if, if it's not them they need somebody in between uh, like somebody that's good with systems somebody that's good um it just in uh, that understands gamer and gamer psychology and you know sociology as a whole to sort of create that link um, from that vision <laughs> to yeah. how the players are going to experience things. And if they don't, then it, they're just, it's just like you have someone just talking and like and then be like, uh, "Don't you get it?" Like, <laughs> yeah. people like no. my ten-year-old has ideas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's just ideas can come from anybody, right? Uh, it's nothing like amazing. Maybe just. You know, it just maybe it's like um, some they're really good at creating these kind of um, magical universes. Right. But in a game, um, just because you have these ideas, it just it, it's not the same as writing a book where players are going to um, experience that world in, in, the, in through words. Right. They have to experience it through an actual gameplay. So the gameplay is the words that you see in the book. So how are you going to express it in gameplay to, to make that sort of world that this visionary person wants to see? Um, and I think that's the hardest part in, in creating games. And um, if anything, it's uh, the combination of really the artists uh, that sort of express that creative vision with um, some of these uh, systems designers that uh, create the systems that sort of um, I best express sort of that kind of vision is where, you know, a lot of the credit sort of lies, right? Yeah, I mean, just to kind of sign off on that is um, one of the one of the popular things that have been happening, I come from the art side, uh, is a technical art director. Uh, and that's someone that can basically build the game himself, but it'll take longer. And I, I respect that role a lot more because you can basically replace me uh, if I, I'm not doing it fast enough for you. But I, I, I respect that because I this is a person that understands the workflow, that understands the ideas, has a practicality to it, but he just needs a team to kind of help execute on a time in a timely manner. So I respect that a lot more because it saves me a lot of time and it, it truly shows me that you put a lot of thought into this uh, so that you're not just throwing it over the fence and and praying that I figure it out for you. Uh, like you said, an idea is a dime in a dozen, right? Everyone has one. But the execution, like like game design, game development, this is not like a, it's a piece of entertainment, right? We're hitting deadlines to put it out there to sell. Uh, it's not a, a thing that we put on a wall and, you know, be okay with it not no one buying it some some games are like that sure but most games aren't uh i would like to also ask you about um about this um so one of the biggest things i i think it started 
probably mid last decade, 2015, 2016 with Houdini, right? Proceduralism is was the wave of the future and and people who are onto it especially in the developers or hobbyists right we're first on the the bandwagon of that and we're, we're starting to see triple a rolling that in um uh because it's necessary because the biggest thing about this gen and and, and future games are that it, it's still the same size team in most cases even smaller uh but the expectations are higher uh, for quality, for everything on all fronts. And the only way to tackle that is proceduralism. So you were mentioning before about Infinite Fleet, like incorporating a lot of this to kind of match up to your previous titles, to, you know, workflows. Uh, can you kind of expand on that a bit of, of what kind of techniques you guys use to kind of help uh, speed things up? Yeah, so... Um... The biggest areas in which we're using procedure generation is uh, creating our universe and our multiple solar systems and universes. But um, if you were to craft every single planet, every single star, every single asteroid um, individually, you would need a whole bunch of, um, you know, artists and, um, you know, modelers and, you know, like people and level designers that are crafting all these experiences yourself. But what we're doing is um, creating a universe, uh, a a, a specific like a a space area where we're creating rules, basically, what things should spawn next to each other, what things can't, um, what are the gameplay rules around uh, certain planets and their gravity fields and um, uh, different types of anomalies and their magnetic elements and stuff um, and how that affects other things in space. And, you know, so what makes sense for things to be near each other or whatnot. Right. And then also things like terrain and things on planets um, uh, and the kind of thing that uh, can exist uh, depending on the type of terrain and atmosphere. Right. So those are like rules within the procedural generation that we create so they don't have to be sculpted individually by a person um and once we create these rules it just like execute right and it, it sort of um fills in the universe with all these different elements uh every of all different possibilities and things that can exist right so it allows a smaller team to sort of create these giant worlds uh without needing a big team um, uh, yes, it will need iterations and things, um, you know, as we go, uh, obviously we won't be able to anticipate every scenario, um, because of that, but, uh, it's it still allows us to sort of execute bigger, bigger initiatives that, um, yeah, definitely a smaller team wouldn't have been able to do, uh, without these kind of, this kind of technology. So, like, kind of compare to for listeners out there, like, what were you was it like that where you have like this big team of artists kind of taking sections of worlds, uh, in previous titles or similar MMO titles that aren't using proceduralism? Like, how new is this, uh, that you feel is being introduced to to MMO to to your genre? Um, so this the whole procedural aspect of things is not new um i mean you we've seen it in a lot of dungeon crawling games like diablo and path of exile and things like that all the time where levels are constantly being procedurally generated but it's 
it's not, it's very simple. It's very basic in that it just moves walls around differently. The level itself is structured uh, slightly differently. Um, what we're trying to do is sort of evolve that to the next level, right? Uh, where it's just, it's really just creating new worlds as a whole, and, and like creating new terrain, new, all, basically everything, new levels for players to experience, uh, new content. Um, based on specific game rules that we we set uh, that that makes sense within our universe. So yeah, I wouldn't say procedural level generation is new, but the way we're evolving it, the way we're sort of taking it to the next level um, is is sort of more innovative than uh, what's been out there so far. So I always like to uh, I'm, I'm always magnetize and, and uh, to to system designers within the studios because I do see you guys as kind of like the master of the the universe setting up the rules <laughs> or at least like the middleman where the programmer just makes no sense to me and is antisocial but the designer the system designer is kind of like the middleman where I like oh I kind of understand the functionality of how this game works and is entertaining to kind of listen to um, but. What I like to also kind of relay to the uh, listeners out there is that, um, you know, a lot of what you guys are, are setting things up have kind of laid down the footprint for for artists. Um, like uh, I come from an environment art background and the way you think of setting up rules, because there are rules to how our world is and uh, biomes and how things function, uh, different stratas of the mountains, there's certain like weather condition and behaviors that just functions in a in a in a in a, in a way that, that that makes sense for 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 you to kind of write down on paper um we kind of been using that same way on the art only in recent years uh, where you guys have been doing it since the beginning uh to create it uh, to make things easier to kind of um but because uh by default right a lot of it is interactivity it's just, it's not a movie so a lot of it has to do with players input and reacting from players input and that that is just something i feel like at least in the artist world has been we're finally listening to you guys <laughs> and that's how we're building worlds uh on our side because artists too are uh Sorry to say it, man. We don't want to build all these fantasies that you guys want. <laughs> all these different like, gazillion worlds. Uh, it's impossible for an artist, obviously, to tackle that. Um, so to kind of, like you said, that there's been like a, a lineage of, of this development and proceduralism. Like what what is your uh, kind of like outlook of what the future of proceduralism is? Or do you feel like the team size now, you were mentioning your team, you know, still growing. But uh, is there uh, a future where teams will give you smaller to make bigger things? Or I think 50 to 100 is usually a good size um, just given the tools and even the, 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 the evolving of these tools. Yeah. I mean, I think it really depends, um, for our, what we're trying to do, I think we can grow a little bit more, um, uh, like not just in the game, like the, as a development team, but, uh, you know, in the marketing side of the things and, you know, the other parts of our company. Um, but, it really depends. I think I can't, I, I wouldn't say that, uh, you know, like 50, 60 is right for every develop, uh, every game, some games, you know, don't get me wrong. I don't think every like procedure generation is 
right for every type of game. For our game, it makes sense, right? Um, for if you're trying to make a more crafted experience where you're wanting the players to experience explicitly like what, what the vision is and nothing more, um, then something crafted may, might make more sense. Um, and, uh, you know, that would take more effort. But for what we're trying to do with Infinite Fleet is, you know, we, we want players to direct a lot of what's going on in our universe from the way the economy works in our game to our narrative. Um, it's all player driven. Um, and uh, there are real consequences of what happens in our world. So for example, like if let's say there is a meteor um, headed for earth, right. And um, you know, people don't participate and work together and destroy it. Um, then you know, Earth is gone uh, for everybody, and they have to live with that, those kind of consequences. Um, you know, th 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 that's like a very interesting uh, thing about our game is that, um, you know, it's, it's like narrative, it's very player driven, and the consequences are real. Um, and, you know, it's the same thing with the economy. Right? Economy is going to be very player driven. Um, we're not going to constantly trying to, um, you know, keep things in tune and they keep things in a way where, you know, we're trying to control the offset of how the economy is run. Um, you know, if players really value a certain type of resource and, you know, they, they want to um, uh, create an economy around that, then that's fine, right? Um, we, we want that to happen. Yeah, uh, definitely. Uh, one of the uh, questions that I would love to ask you too, and kind of touching upon, um, it's, a, it's a favorite question I like to kind of throw this out to designers. Um, Streaming has become a dominant force uh, to how we design and make games now. So not only you have to uh, try to execute your vision, but now you have to add another layer of, you know, is this swatchable <laughs> every second uh, of my design? Um, I would love to kind of hear your thoughts about that. Uh, has it changed the way you, you, you design your games? Uh, is it a big factor percentage wise, small factor? Like what, what, what kind of thinking process and pre-production you have to prepare for that? Uh, now that, you know, people want to watch every second of your game and, and uh, for some games is a buy it or, or just watch it type of thing. Um, so I don't think there is a lot of thought put into that. Um, I, I know, that, so when we make a PvP game um, and, and the game is focused for player versus player, um, yeah, they're, they're, that, that's definitely, um, uh, uh, there is a lot of um, thought put into that aspect uh, because for a game to become an eSport, it has to be entertaining to watch. Um, that's one of the key factors um, to drive a game to esports. Um, and, and you know, a lot of developers think esports is something that they can make uh, for their game to happen. Like you can't make esports; it's just uh, the players have to want it, right? So the only thing that developers can do really is to add things like observer mode and you know make make the game entertaining to watch, right? Then then the game has a potential to become an esport. But um, in our case, right now. Uh, we're focused on PVE, so player versus, yeah, enemy. Um, where later on, uh, you, you know, we will be incorporating uh, a PVP aspect, and it's the PVP part where we'll really be focused on: uh, is the PVP gameplay when players pl players play against each other, is that interesting to watch? 
right? Um, Like, is it too slow? And, um, you know, there's not a lot of um, action um, and immediate rewards as someone that's watching. Um, Or is there enough there? So it's engaging players, right? Those are metrics and things that we'll see uh, later on. But um, in this case, for our case, we're really just, um, I wouldn't say we're not, we don't care about it, but we don't really think too much about it. At this moment, we're more focused specifically on just the players that are playing, that would be playing uh, moment to moment. Um, how long of a cycle are they engaged in and um, uh, how, how likely will they be coming back um, you know, after their first, second, third session and things like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm going to ask you to put on your, your biz dev hat real quick, just to kind of talk about that. Is that ever a, a factor while you guys were pitching Infinite Fleet around where streaming becomes like a, a point of conversation for publishers to okay or, or some features or asking you to add features? Has that ever been a talking point um, as, as part of your uh, design? Um it's only again. It's only when uh, you know there, there's a big drive for it to okay. become this part. Yeah, uh, not not really in the PVE sense of things, but definitely when um, you know the publisher or investor has a real interest in that whole esports uh, theme of things. Um, that's when they really care about how the the entertainment part of uh, um, the the watch experience uh, when players are watching other streamers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So you you briefly talked about earlier in the interview about distributed work. So obviously pandemic time, uh, you guys were, it sounds like you guys were prepared for this more than others. Uh, can you kind of talk about your, 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 your thinking process before the pandemic? Why, uh, and, uh, how has that worked for you or against you, um, for, 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 for reasons? Yeah. Um, yeah. Like, just like you mentioned, like we were doing it before the pandemic. So I was actually, I, I've been contacted by a few friends at Relic, um, you know, after the whole pandemic and everybody started working remote that like, you know, how, how do you run things? Um, like, do you have issues? You know, all those kind of know-hows and stuff. Right. So, you know, I, I took the time to share that. Um, but um, the reason I like, I think it's great um, in that it allows uh, a studio to sort of attract some of the best talent from around the world. Um, it also allows you to find talent uh, a lot easier than when you're constrained to a specific region and a zone. So, you know, th- those are some great things. Um, like some of the difficulties are uh, when you're spread out too much, I guess, I guess across multiple time zones, <laughs> then it's really hard to set up meetings um, because, you know, for some people it might be like four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> so like, those are some challenges that we, we, you know, sort of deal with, um, you know, moment to moment here and there, um, either through um, uh, arranging special meetings with, you know, people of that time. There, there, there are a lot of times when we just can't, it's just almost impossible to create, to have meetings with everybody that's working on the team, you know, in one meeting, just because it's uh, spread out too much. Um, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, so those, those are some of the hard points um, The again, like the great, but then it, it works great for us for most things. I think the key thing is um, communicate often um, and uh, on for people that have uh, worked in, in an office space before um, that sort of 
feeling of culture uh, that emanates from working in a game development studio. Um, it has, I think like somebody in the studio, whether it's in the operations or, you know, whether it's management, they have to sort of uh, put in that extra due diligence um, of making that sort of exist, even when you're working remotely, uh, because it has to be extra level of effort that has to be put in. It, when, you're, when you're in an office space together, it's, it just comes naturally uh, because you're always bumping into, into each other and then you're sort of sharing your game stories that you played last night or whatever. Um, but it's a, it's, it's a lot harder when um, you're working remote because uh, when you have a meeting, it's just specific, okay, what's, what are we here to talk about? You're done and then off, right? So yeah, somebody has to do that because I, I, that's one of the things that's awesome about working in the game development industry, that sort of game development culture. So yeah, like making it not feel so much like work all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is one of my last questions. I mean, this question itself can be a, a topic on its own, but I would love to kind of hear your thoughts and opinions about it. So one of the things that kind of snuck up on me while I was working on these big titles is the mobile industry, right? The, the mobile industry was like that sneaker uh, and, and in some ways very evolved version of what the game industry should look like uh, in terms of stability, in terms of just uh, just agileness uh and it's just a beast on its own and i feel like some some design elements have come from there to 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 games like Fortnite and the monetization part of it at least uh as a designer i would love to kind of hear your thoughts about that because when i talk to a designer who works on mobile every game design has to have like a like a currency incentive <laughs> it's like can people buy this or not or or, or that um i would love to kind of hear your thought if some of the mobile game design has ever uh if you ever looked into it is it something that you constantly look at or study uh to see what can be brought over to uh, a triple a uh gamer experience so the thing i think i i know that um we take away from mobile game development a lot is um, the way they pay attention to a lot of the metrics and a lot of the data um um like i don't like personally i'm not a big fan uh, of how majority of the mobile games work just because uh they base a lot of their decisions and game um uh the things that they introduce into the game less about player experience but more about how it's going to generate more profit for the studio Right. Yeah. It's, it's all based on revenue and engagement and how that's going to lead into more profit. Right. It, it, that's like their number one decision factor for everything. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's sort of like, if you, if you look at some of the bigger mobile companies, like it's, it's, they have a gigantic data analytic team that just spits out all these uh, yeah. numbers and things that they should do. And they just follow that. Um, what I love about mobile games is that, um, that, uh, you know, that sort of stresses me out with, uh, like PC and, um, uh, console things. And I just had a recent discussion with somebody in the industry about this. It's just like how, when you're making games for PC, um, you know, you always have to worry about the minimum spec, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. And, uh, same with console. Like what about the Xbox? I don't know, like 360 or like yeah. even before that you have to worry about all that. Right. Whereas, um, 
like with mobile, like everybody has a mobile phone, right? So all you need to do is make an entertaining game and it's, they have access to that, right? If, if your spec isn't, if your mobile phone can't support this game, you won't be able to download it, right? So it, it's it's pretty clear cut, like what you're doing. So in, in the technical uh, aspect of, as someone that's creating the game, it's a lot simpler. Um, uh, but like, from a designer's perspective, um, you know, the part that we do take away is trying to understand player behavior more. Um, I mean, I think the, the game industry as a whole, have the one of the big takeaways as a the whole, um, whether it's console or PC, have learned from mobile is that um, the whole data analytic element. But I don't like the way mobile uses that. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways, they use that to exploit gamers for, um, you know, profit more than, you know, allowing them for uh, like awesome, cool, you know, player experience stuff. Um, and um, I, I think if anything, PC can probably take that analytic and use it in that kind of way because PC games are generally more focused around that. Uh, um, I'm, I'm not saying all games, uh, obviously, but, you know, PC games are more focused around sort of um, providing more of that epic experience. Um, than mobile games. Mm -hmm. I I definitely uh, sign off on that for sure. Uh, It's very tech industry. Uh, You know, all these social networks are always trying to gain your attention to to kind of, you know, sell ads to you basically. So it's not about the play experience per se. And and I I feel the same way AAA goes too far (laughs) about the play experience and not thinking about you know, making a profit too. So there is a middle line there. I feel like both industries need to like have round tables <laughs> routinely to kind of figure that out because I think there are benefits to having a playable, fun experience that makes money. I mean, that that's the goal for every game, right? Why not get in a room? I feel like we figured it out, but we just don't talk to each other, which is another odd thing when I was jumping around. Like the mobile A people don't talk to AAA people. It's like completely different sectors. And then the indie people have their own corners and it's always still separate. I hope, if anything, the podcast will bring everyone together, but like it is a it's, it is a, a, a pending problem, I, I, I feel, with game developers that are constantly separate. Um, it's weird. We just don't have a hub that everyone just hangs out and, and trades stories because uh, it's everything's such a mystery. Um, well, uh, we are uh, at the hour mark, and I want to thank you, Jason, for for coming on and and and, and spilling your wisdom all over the place. Uh, this is the part of the podcast where I hand the mic over to you, so that you can shout out, give attention to, or and tell the good people out there uh, what to do and what to get. Yeah. So yeah, currently at Pixelmatic, um, we're developing in a, a new MMO sci-fi strategy game called Infinite Fleet, uh, where the player assumes the role of commander of in a United in the United Soul Federation. It's kind of like the world space force, uh, and they've been given command over a fleet of these gigantic battle fortresses, where they can upgrade, customize, and create that perfect synergistic fleet while defending humanity from the merciless and um, powerful enemy. And yeah, like uh, there, it's, it's a lot of our economy and our narrative will be player driven, uh, which really puts the um, power in the player's hands in how they sort of sculpt our universe. 
So if that sounds interesting, um, yeah, definitely uh, check out our website, www.infinitefleet.com, where we have a whole slew of like lore and um, episodes of story, backstory that you can read ahead of time. And um, fundraising wise, we finished our first round of fundraising uh, recently. Um, we were oversold. Actually, we finished in like a couple, like two days or a day or two days. Nice. Um, $3.1 million or so. Oh, humble brag, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, we're, we're starting our second round. And that was more for private investors. Uh, and we're so starting our second round of fundraising, uh, which will be available to the public uh, people. Um, and that will be available on stalker.io. That's S-T-O-K-R.io. Um, and the unique thing about the way we're fundraising, unlike um, traditional uh, fundraising where, you know, you buy and you get some tokens and some digital items. Um, you get that when uh, you you participate, but for, for our race, but you also get equity, right, uh, in our company. So well, what's like, you don't, the, the, the thing about um, games like, uh, what's that, um, Star Citizen is, um, you know, you just sort of get digital items where in, in our case, you actually get equity, uh, real equity. Uh, so any kind of profit the the studio itself makes, um, you know, we share it with our other people that own uh, this equity. So it's a new way of um, sort of uh, raising funds, and uh, there's a lot more value in it uh, than you know just enjoy the game and you know like it just it's nothing, right? You just you're just donating money in Kickstarters, where in our case you're also an investor. So yeah. Um, definitely check out stalker.io www.infinitefleet.com awesome uh, while everyone is captive in their home, uh, in their homes because of the pandemic, I, I think people are, are actually looking forward to kind of uh, own a piece of the universe. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's a nice fast time as, as data shows people are playing games like crazy. It sounds a lot of fun, man. And as always, uh, you can find the information in the show notes, everybody, uh, for all the links and information. Uh, well, Jason, I want to thank you for, for dropping by uh, my my apartment <laughs> and, uh, and talking to me about the game and, and your thoughts and, and uh, system design in general. Um, that's it. I want to thank you for your time and then see y'all next week. Yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you are liking the podcast, go to the Apple iTunes store and give Game Dev Unchained a five-star rating. This will help spread the joy and love and exposure for the podcast, and we thank you very much. If you want to continue the conversation, go to our Discord, which can be found on our website, www.gamedevunchained.com. You can also follow me on Twitter at BlueChamps, B-L-U-C-H-A-M-P-S. You want to catch these episodes live every Tuesdays and Thursdays, go to twitch.tv forward slash blue underscore champs. 
Email me any of your concerns or questions that you want me to read aloud at the beginning of each episode at info at gamedevunchained.com. And if you want to further support us and help unlock the next feature, which is the voicemail feature, go to patreon.com forward slash blue champs this gives listeners a chance to kind of call in leave a message for both me and the guests to answer your deepest darkest questions and comment on your deepest darkest secrets thank you everybody